there was a kindergarten teacher who was walking around her classroom one day while her students were drawing at their desk and she's walking around commenting on everybody's drawings and she comes across this little kindergarten student who was just diligently working on her paper and the teacher said what are you doing and she said I'm drawing a picture of God and the teacher said well nobody knows what God looks like and without missing a beat without even looking up she said they will in a minute Back on January 2nd, do you remember way back then, a couple of months ago, January 2nd, we said that the year 2022 was going to be a transition year for this church family here at Golf Course Road. We said that this is going to be a year of growth for us. We're going to, in 2022, let go of some things and zero in with greater focus on other things. We agreed that day, actually I said it, nobody disagreed out loud, but we agreed that if, if the people of Midland, Texas could see God as he really is, if they could understand who God is, not, not what they believe about God, not what their uncle says about God, not what the culture tells them about God, if they could really see who God is, they would line up for miles to be his children. If they really understood and experienced our God as he is revealed in Scripture, as he is revealed in Jesus Christ, then they'd break down our doors to get closer to him. Back on January 2nd, we agreed that we are called to something so much bigger than just this church at GCR. We are called to something so much greater and grander and more eternal than just whatever our hopes are or our good ideas. We are called as a church to reflect the glory of God. That's our call, to reflect God's glory. And so we started the year on January 2nd with what I think is the number one single most important statement about our God in the entire Bible. Exodus 34 5, 6, and 7. We said on January 2nd, these words of our Lord in Exodus 34, we want to get them inside us. We want these words to form us. We want them to shape us. We want to memorize this passage together, these three verses. We want these verses to become a part of who we are this year at Golf Course Road. And so if you'll remember, and I've been in some of your houses, you have these little things set up in your kitchen and in your entryway of your house. We have a few more of these remaining. These are the words of Exodus 34, 5 through 7. These little tents that you can put together and put them in your bathroom. Put them in a place where you see them every single day. For some of us, that would be inside the refrigerator. But wherever you can put this so that you're reminded of these powerful words of our Lord. Again, you can pick those up uh, after we're finished here uh, at, the, uh, at the exits here at the worship center. But I want us to, to come back to Exodus 34, 5 through 7 today. We're going to come back to this passage several times here in 2022. And I want us to remember the context here. Okay, if you'll back up just a chapter to Exodus 33, we're reminded that this is right after the incident with the golden calf. So when we come to Exodus 34, Moses is angry. He's already smashed the Ten Commandments. God is upset. He's already punished Israel. And here at the end of 33, God and Moses are kind of arguing about this together. 
They're in the tent together and they're kind of going back and forth. And then finally God tells Moses, look, this doesn't change anything. You still got to take these people to the promised land. You still got to get up and you got to do what I said we're going to do because I am the Lord and I made a promise. But Moses needs some reassurance. He needs to know that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. And so in 33, 12, Moses says to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Moses says, teach me your ways so I may know you. Teach me. Show me. I want to know you. Verse 18, Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see you, God. I've heard the voice in the burning bush. I've, I've seen the finger writing on the tablets of law, but I want to see your face. I want to know exactly who it is I'm talking to here. I want some assurance. Before we go any farther, show me your glory. Verse 19, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. My goodness, not my literal face, my goodness. The glory of God has nothing to do with what he looks like. This is about his honor and his character and his qualities. This is who God is. And at the end of chapter 33, God makes a plan. He tells Moses, look, tomorrow morning there's a place where you can stand. If you'll stand right there first thing in the morning, I will proclaim my name to you. I will reveal my glory to you. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's the number one single most important statement about God in the whole Bible. These are God's own words. This is God's own voice. This is our God's heart. This is his mind. This is his will. This is a face-to-face -face revelation of God to his people. This is who God is. Why doesn't the world know our God? They don't know him. Because if they did, they would chase him down all day long. But they don't. They don't know God. Most people see our God like this. He's an old man. He's got long flowing white hair and a white beard. He is strong. He is mighty. He is powerful, yes, but he's also stern. And he is strict. He's got a wrinkled forehead. Here's God. Again, 
Big and strong, yes, the same flowing hair and beard, but he's very distant. Stay away. I'm up here. You're down there. And the wrinkled forehead. He's frowning. Our God is frowning. He is sovereign. He is the source of all wisdom and strength. But he's frowning. When you Google images of God, why are these the pictures you get? Why does the world see God as so grumpy? Do they see that in us? I'm using a little humor here, but the point I want to make is serious. Why does the world view God as angry and always on the hunt to judge and to punish? Have they seen that in us? Why do some people believe that God can never forgive them? That he'll always remember their sins and hold it against them? Have they experienced that in us? Why do they think our God is distant and out of reach, untouchable, unable to really meet their practical needs? Why do they feel like an encounter with God is either impossible or undesirable? Have they gotten that idea from you or from your church? Where does the world get the idea that God is out to destroy them? Do they get it from us? Does the world view God like this? As an angry, accusing, warring God, a judgmental God? Do they view God like this because their experience with God's children is that they are accusing and warring and judgmental? Sam Harris, who is a famous atheist, if you can be famous for being an atheist, Sam Harris is, he wrote a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Here's some of what Sam Harris wrote. Since the publication of my first book, The End of Faith, thousands of people have written to tell me that I am wrong not to believe in God. The most hostile of these communications have come from Christians. This is ironic. As Christians generally imagine that no faith imparts the virtues of love and forgiveness more effectively than their own. The truth is, that many who claim to be transformed by Christ's love are deeply, even murderously, intolerant of criticism or rejection. While we may want to ascribe this to human nature, it is clear that such hatred draws considerable support from the Bible. How do I know this? The most disturbed of my correspondents always cite book, chapter, and verse. Have you ever considered that maybe the Christian emails that you forward or the Christian petitions you sign or the Christian bumper stickers on your car actually violate the character of our God? 
Have you ever wondered if the church itself is fueling the fires of atheism in this country by the ways we interact or don't interact with our community? Have you ever thought about the way your words and actions at the airport, at work, in your neighborhood might be turning people away from God? Brothers and sisters, our God is compassionate. He is compassionate. That's who he is. And if the world knew about our God's eternal compassion, they would fall in love with him. But how will they comprehend our God's compassion if they don't experience it in God's redeemed children? How will they know the great compassion of our Lord if God's people are not reflecting it? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God. The glory of our God is His compassion. In Hebrew, the word compassion is rachum. Okay, it's like raccoon but with an M on the end and a in the middle. Okay, so rachum. Everybody say that out loud. Rachum. Okay, and now wipe the spit off the back of your head from the person behind you. Rachum, rachum comes from a Hebrew root word that means the womb. And so this is a compassion like a parent feels for a child. This is a nurturing thing. This is a comforting and a protecting thing. This is a very close relational thing. We read from Psalm 103 during our call to worship today. This is as a father has rachum, as a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion. On all those who fear him. Isaiah 49 says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? It's a rhetorical question, right? Can a mother ever forget about her own baby? No way. That's impossible. But even if she did, even if the impossible happened, God says, I will never forgive you. Compassion, right? God says, that's me. I am compassion. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells his people, he says, I know you're going to reject me. I know you're going to sin. I know you're going to chase after the idols and you're going to leave me. God says, bad things are going to happen to you and you're going to be in distress, but you're going to come back and it's going to be okay. Why? For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant compassion. Nehemiah chapter 9. God's people are looking around and they say, wow, God, you were right. You blessed us and we rebelled against you. Verse 17, but you are a forgiving God. And then they start quoting from Exodus 34. You are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger, abounding in love. Verse 19, because of your great rachum, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon us. Verse 27, from heaven you heard us and in your great compassion. Verse 28, you delivered time after time after time. Our God is compassionate his great love for all people is without limits remember when Jonah ran away from Nineveh you remember that right why did he run away he did not want to preach the good news to his nation's enemies why not why did Jonah not want to preach good news from God to his country's enemies you remember why 
He said it in Jonah chapter 4. He's shaking his fist at God. He says, I knew. I knew you are a compassionate God. And he starts quoting Exodus 34 right back to God. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you would change your mind and you would not destroy our enemies. I've had this verse since I was in Sunday school. I knew it and I was right. Our God is a compassionate God. He loves all people like a mother loves her baby, like a father loves his child. If you have a child in this room, would you look at them right now? I want you to look right at your kid, okay? Now, kids, you're not in trouble, okay? Your parents are, okay? So, so look at your kids right now. Just stare at them, okay? Uh, some of you have grown kids in this room. I want you to look at your grown kids. Just look right at them. If you don't have kids in here, uh, pull out your phone and get a picture of them. I'm giving you permission. I really want you to do this. Pull out a picture of your kids. And if you don't have kids, pull up the picture of the person you love the most in your life. And look at them right now. Everybody in this room, look at your kid. What would you not do for that kid? Is there anything that you would not do for your son? Is there anything you would not do for your daughter? Is there any sacrifice you wouldn't make? Is there anything you wouldn't move to secure your child's safety and salvation? Is there anything at all? That's how God feels about you. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Amen. Amen. That's how God feels about you. Brothers and sisters, there's some good news there. We belong to a compassionate God. And that compassion is seen perfectly in his holy son, Jesus Christ. That compassion of Jesus reveals God's glory. We heard a bunch of these passages read by four of our beautiful young people earlier today. Matthew chapter 9. I just want to go through a couple of these. Matthew chapter 9 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. Matthew 20, Jesus and his disciples leaving Jericho, a large crowd follows, two blind men sitting by the roadside. They cry out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Jesus is compassionate. What else would we expect, right? God's compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. The Greek word here is oikthermos. I don't want you to say that one out loud. It's a hard one. Oikthermos. You know what it means? It means deeply moved inside your bowels. 
So you thought that was a Mexican word like enchilada or jalapeno. It's not. It's a Greek word, oikthermos. It means to be moved deep inside your bowels, right? It's, it's this Greek word for compassion. This is a deep feeling that comes from your guts. This comes from your intestines. This comes from the very center, literally, of who you are. Today in America, we use the word heart for stuff like that. Back then, they said bowels. So here's a, here's a heads up. When you go home today, don't tell your wife you love her with all of your bowels, okay? That... That will communicate something you're not intending to. But this is the word, right? Jesus has this oikthermos, this, this compassion, these deep feelings of mercy and kindness that come deep from within who he is. And he has this compassion, church, for everybody. The gospels say Jesus felt this compassion for the crowds. This compassion is what moved Jesus to reach out to the sick and the hungry. This is what compelled him to heal and to feed. And it's very interesting to me to know that even when Jesus is in extreme opposition, he never loses this great compassion. He's attacked with accusations and insults and it did not harden our Lord. He suffers misunderstandings and abuse, but our Savior never turns sour or grumpy. He's not angry. He's never vengeful. The fickle crowds who can't make up their minds, the people who are outright rejecting him, Jesus always met them with healing and touching and acceptance. He always extended the invitation to the kingdom of God. It was never closed. Our Lord never shut anybody out. See, his compassion is not just emotional. <laughs> There's less room here than there usually is. <laughs> it's not just an emotional thing, okay? It's not just a feeling inside him that he acts on. It's a deep conviction. This is what guides our Lord Jesus. He reaches out to people and he touches people and he heals them so they'll hear his message of forgiveness and life. That deep compassion means there's nothing Jesus won't do. There's no sacrifice he won't make. There's no limit to where he will go. We know Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
Barton Stone, who was the founder of what became the Churches of Christ, wrote this in 1805. The cross of Christ is the highest revelation of God's compassion. A revelation containing such compelling and drawing force that it dramatically transforms the human mind, heart, and will. The cross is a gripping display of vicarious suffering and divine compassion. You know, church, we've got all these theological categories for what happened at the cross Salvation, justification, redemption, expiation, reconciliation, propitiation. We've got all these big fancy words for what happened at the cross. And I think all of that fancy language just tells us what happened at the cross is so much bigger than anything any of us can express in language. Our language doesn't do it justice. It is too big it is too beautiful to communicate. It's like, it's like putting the picture of the Grand Canyon on a coffee mug, you know? It just, it doesn't work. Doesn't do it justice. It's not church words. It's not theological theories. Church, it's the cross. The cross shows us clearly. It communicates to us powerfully beautifully the depths of God's compassion for us. It's not that God's promises for you are going to come true despite his suffering and death. It is because of his suffering and death that God's promises will come true for you. His suffering and death is what saves you. That's what saves the whole world. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's at least a dozen of those here. Our, 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 us, we. Over and over again. Until we finally get it that what Jesus did at the cross is not just an historical fact, although it is. It's much more than an historical fact. It's an eternal truth that none of us can quite comprehend. That we go astray, but Jesus suffers for it. We sin, but he's punished for it. We rebel and disobey, but he's rejected and killed for it. We break the law, and he pays the price. Church, that's the compassion of our Lord Jesus. Passion is from, you probably know this, it's from the Latin word that means suffering. Suffering, passion. Calm means with or together. So compassion means suffering with. Suffering together. And we know Jesus suffers with us. We're, we're, we're very convinced of that, right? We see Jesus crying at funerals. He weeps over cities. He agonizes with the father of a sick child. He, he goes through the pain himself of the, uh, the man with the dead daughter. We know this about Jesus. It's, it's uh, affirmed for us. We're reminded of it. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save. We know Jesus suffers with us. And on the cross, he suffers and dies for us. 
at the cross. It's where the depth of God's compassion really comes into focus and accomplishes what's impossible. Your salvation. Verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all. It's the only way we can be redeemed and reconciled. This is the only way we can live right now, today, and forever in the presence of our Lord. And the catalyst for this mighty wonder at the cross is our God's everlasting compassion. Church, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Not that Jesus suffered and died, but that he suffered and died for us. For you and me. Thank you, Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 says Christ's love compels us. One died for all. And he died so that those who live don't live to themselves any longer. From now on, the passage says, we don't regard anybody from a worldly point of view. Because of what God through Christ did for us at the cross, we got to come up with a whole different way of looking at people. A whole different viewpoint. And I'll go back to the previous statement. If our world is ever going to experience God, if our world's really ever going to see God for who he really is, they've got to experience that in God's people. We've got to be compelled by a Christ-like compassion for all people. Brothers and sisters, we have to develop a different point of view. Our compassion reflects God's glory. Colossians chapter 3, it's one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. This is about baptism. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since you've been raised with Christ, you've been raised out of the water. You're a baptized disciple of Jesus. Verse 3, you died. Remember at your baptism, you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ, it says. And when he appears again, you're also going to appear with him in glory, with his glory. Verse 10, you have a new self now. You're being renewed. You're being changed, it says. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. Verse 12, therefore, since you are God's chosen people, since you are holy and dearly loved by God, clothe yourselves with compassion. Be compassionate. People can't see your insides, but they can see your outsides. They can see your clothes. Put on compassion. Ephesians 4, right at the end of the chapter, says a very similar thing. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Be imitators of God. Imitate God? My word, who can imitate God? Nobody can imitate God. I can't be omnipresent. I can't be omnipotent. I can't be omniscient. I can't spell omniscient. How am I going to imitate God. Listen, those are all words we made up. When our God says, imitate me, 
He tells us what that is. He uses relational terms. He doesn't use long $25 theological words. He says, I am compassionate. Be compassionate. Imitate me. Show compassion. Right? And until we take very seriously the ways we interact with others, until we realize our relationship with God cannot be separate from our relationship with other people, until we come to that conclusion, we'll never become what God intends for us to be. We see the needs of people all around us. We know what they are. We see them every day. And we must allow our hearts to feel deeply with them. And our compassion for all people must compel us to act. We reflect our God's glory. We reflect God's compassion. We take God's attributes and his actions that we've received, we redirect that to other people, toward all people. We've got to get close enough to the crowds to bring the healing touch of our Lord into their lives. Caring for the physical and the emotional needs of people is critical to showing them the compassion of our God. And it's the very thing that will open their hearts to Christ's forgiveness and salvation. And here's the key. This is it. We cannot reflect to others what we ourselves have never received. We can't imitate what we don't see. It's got to be real. Copying God, acting like God, imitating God, that's an overwhelming idea. In fact, in the abstract theological way, it's impossible. But when you truly experience God's merciful, sacrificial, selfless, sympathetic, empathetic compassion, when you experience God's compassion, it becomes very necessary to reflect that to others. And it becomes quite natural. We want to bring the glory of God into every single context of our lives, in here and out there. Amen? Amen. No fine print, no escape clauses, right? No loopholes. It's not, we're going to reflect God's compassion to people who think just like us. We're going to reflect God's compassion to people who look just like us. We're going to reflect God's compassion when I'm happy, or I'm only going to reflect God's compassion when I'm comfortable. That's not it. We're going to reflect God's compassion always as a conviction, as a way of reflecting God's glory to all of creation. And when our community sees the glory of God in us, when our city experiences in us the compassion of our God as he revealed it to us on Mount Sinai, as he demonstrated it on the cross of Calvary, when this city sees that in us, church, they're going to break down our doors to get closer to him. They will. Whatever you do in word or deed, right? Do it all for the glory, the glory of God. I'm going to ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses, would y'all stand up right now? Would y'all kind of spread out around the worship center? Um, I don't want it to be lost. What we said about um, it's impossible to reflect God's glory if you haven't ever received it yourself. Um, 
I want to make sure that if you're in the room this morning and you feel like you've never received God's compassion or you haven't experienced the love of our Lord, the way he reveals it to us, if you're looking at those pictures of Jesus on the cross and you're not feeling something, uh, or if you're feeling something and, and you need somebody to pray with you, if you want to have a conversation with somebody, uh, we want to make sure we're available for that. So you come up here and talk to Billy. You can talk to Carrie Ann and me, uh, Eddie and Carol. They'll pray with you. Any of our elders and ministers here in the back, we want to just lift up God to you. I want to tell you that whatever you're going through, our Lord is compassionate towards you, okay? He is familiar with suffering. He knows. He's done it, and he's doing it right now. He's with you right at your hand. He's right beside you. And we want to be able to assure you of that. We want to lift you up to God and ask him to help you uh, with whatever's going on in your life. Um, our God is compassionate. Our Lord is compassionate. And we all reflect the Lord's glory. And we're all being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And that comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May our faithful God bless us richly as we reflect God's glory to this community, to his everlasting praise. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, church. Let's sing and let's pray.